This is a podcast for Functional Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. My name is Enrico Resende. I'm a senior editor of Functional Ecology, and I'm here because I have the pleasure to talk with Umait Samji, who's the main author of one of the papers that has been selected to for the Haldane Prize that is awarded by our journal Functional Ecology and uh, sponsored by the British Ecological Society. So given this privilege of having been, you know, able to talk to him, you know, I'd like to welcome you, Matt. You know, it's, it's a pleasure Thanks. to see you. It's a pleasure to meet you. And Delighted to be let's here. let's start with some, yes. And so let's start with some basic description. The, the name of the paper is Exaggerated Sexually Selected Weapons Maintained with Disproportionately Low Metabolic Costs in a Single Species with Extreme Size Variation. And it has been published on uh, the, the June the 4th of 2021. And so, well, now, Matt, you know, congratulations for being shortlisted for the Haldane Prize. I mean, it says a lot about, you know, the paper and the quality of the research that you're doing. And so I'd like to go a little bit more in detail on what has led you to develop this study. Yeah, I, um, well, I've always been uh, interested in, uh, in insects and um, particularly some of these exaggerated traits are the type of things that draw your attention and, and, um, some of them are really bizarre. Um, I spent my PhD work studying the exaggerated legs in a group of insects that use their legs to fight. But while I was doing uh, my PhD work in Panama, um, on a fallen log, I found these weevils that were really elongated. They look like a, a normal little beetle, but it, it looks like it's been stretched out, <laughs> particularly um, its head. And uh, males use their elongated heads in jousting-like competitions uh, for mating opportunities. So they fight with other males and guard females um, and reproductive opportunities. And um, so these are the ones, uh, the ones that you call the giraffe weevils, right? And, and precisely because they have these elongated heads, but we would, you know, some elongated neck, if you will, right? Exactly, exactly. And so... Um, so I kind of kept that in mind and I was interested in these, these weevils and I saw them jousting here in the logs, but that also caused me to uh, contact a researcher who studies uh, a related species that has a very similar biology um, in New Zealand, the New Zealand giraffe weevil. And this is one of the, this is the largest weevil in that, uh, in that group of the Brented weevils. And um, it's the longest weevil in the world. <laughs> And um, there's also this huge size difference uh, among males. So the smallest individual is about 30 times smaller than the largest one. So that's the size difference between a human and the combined mass of two giraffes. <laughs> so it, it's pretty incredible that um, these two extremes are of, of individuals from the same population are competing for the same mating opportunities, are living in the same habitat, um, and are all kind of in the same place, in the same population. So you're talking about adult individuals then. Then it's uh, individual variation in size. Exactly, yes. It is quite massive, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so one additional interesting thing is um, a large individual is not just a scaled-up version of a small one. The proportion of different body parts changes. And one of the most uh, striking things is that elongated head that males use in competition gets disproportionately larger as these weevils scale up in size. And this is 
common to many sexually selected traits. So it's found in the tusks of elephants, but it's also found in the in the tusks of tiny tusked weevils. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. found in the antlers uh, of elk and other deer species, but it's also found in the miniature antlers of antlered flies that compete in similar ways, uh, males fighting against each other. It's found in the ornamented plumage of many birds, but it's also found in the feather-like ornaments in canopy-dwelling mosquitoes. So it's a very interesting pattern. Larger species often invest disproportionately more in these sexually selected structures compared to small ones. I see, I see. And so I can, I can follow the argument. That means you were wondering what are the costs? Exactly. And, and costs have been kind of a big question in um, trying to understand sexually selected trait evolution. When we think of size, we think of costs. And if you imagine something like a fiddle crab that dedicates 50% of its body mass into a claw that it uses for fighting, for sexual selection, that's half its body mass. It's pretty extreme. Absolutely. While yeah. as the rest of its body is dedicated to everything else for like feeding, immune function, um, post-copy reproduction, all these other effects. So it's like having a boxing glove that's 50% of your body mass. And that's quite a striking investment. Um, and so people have been trying to measure costs in different ways. Um, and there's a famous quote by Darwin, uh, which he wrote in a letter when he published The Origin of Species, probably a year after he published The Origin of Species, where he says, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, whenever I gaze at it, makes me sick. And we later found out that he dedicated an entire book to the subject of sexual selection and why oh, sure. animals have these extravagant traits. But we still are learning more about the physiology of how animals are able to have these traits and have this extreme size variation. Right. I mean, to contextualize, right? So uh, essentially, uh, even during Darwin's time, he, he acknowledged that many of the, the traits that would be selected by sexual means, right, sexual selection, they would seem to be maladaptive when it comes to natural selection, even the peacock, right? It becomes visible, so predators can actually see it. It's difficult to fly with that huge tail. And so you can definitely see how it should have some impact on fitness. And nevertheless, there it is, right? I mean, exactly. the males, yeah. they do exhibit those massive traits. They seem to, it seems to imply that they have some costs, but it's very difficult to quantify it. Exactly. And, and we've been trying to quantify those costs in, re, in many different ways. But surprisingly, they've been very, very difficult to find. Um, studies on fiddler crabs that measured crabs walking with and without a claw predicted that they might be um, higher energetic costs of walking with this enlarged claw rather than without it, but they found no different in the energetic cost of walking with this large claw. Very mm -hmm. surprising. Studies of peacocks found that they found no detectable change in takeoff performance or energy consumption during takeoff with these enlarged trains, which is also very paradoxical. Mm -hmm. So even for some of these most extreme and exaggerated traits, it's been very, very difficult to find where those costs are. How do these animals maintain these structures um, and grow them despite all the potential uh, negative effects on, on natural selection that they might impose? I understand. So essentially, we assume that there are costs, but apparently we haven't quantified them appropriately, right? Yeah, right. So like physiology has allowed us to start looking at traits in different ways. So you imagine a peacock's tail, it's actually made of mostly inert tissue, carotene, mm -hmm. and accounts for about 6.9% of body mass. Well, right. if we think of a 
a bird maybe with a slightly different uh, form of sexually selected traits, like an Eastern kingbird, where males dedicate about 30% more muscle mass into pectoral muscles that they use in aerobatic flights, <laughs> likely uh, in displays for females. Um, those muscles are so much like comprise more more mass relative to the bird, the rest of the bird, um, compared to a peacock's tail. But they're not very obvious to us or visible, and so we might not pay as much attention to them. And they're also muscles, so they're living tissue and they consume energy. So by looking at the physiology of the trait, we might get a different definition of what exaggeration means. I understand. So coming back to the study, because you were mentioning before the interview, right, how the idea came up. And I presume, I'm not really sure, but I presume that you didn't have selection or sexual selection in mind at the very beginning, right? You mentioned that you just saw these weevils and they seemed like an interesting study model, right? Exactly. So, th so they were very interesting to me because I could uh, watch individuals fight on a log. I could, I, I could notice that, you know, these large individuals tend to be uh, winning fights more often. Um, but also I, I noticed that this size variation provided a really unique opportunity. Most insects don't vary, of adult insects don't vary tremendously in size, uh, about three times in size in, in adults. Um, but these, because these weevils have a huge variation in size, this allowed us to really examine how the rest of the body changes as individuals, um, for individuals that are very small relative to those that are very large. It, it provides an avenue for us to examine how different proportions of body parts then, change across the spectrum. I'm sorry, but then the weevils that you saw, this variation was in the species that you saw in Panama? So it, it wasn't as extreme in the species I saw in Panama, um, but it, it was there. So the species in Panama has, have about a 26-fold size variation. I see. Um, and then what happened? How come the, the study model from the paper is actually uh, from New Zealand? So I, um, I contacted um, the researcher who studied these in New Zealand. I was so taken by the system, by those Brented weevils, um, I couldn't find them in Panama again. You, they, they're found in patchy areas on fallen fig trees. Um, and it's sometimes very difficult to find them um, to do a research, to do research on them. Um, but this uh, research in New Zealand had developed the system for over a decade, had found locations where she could consistently find them. And because they're just overall so much larger, it provides an easier model to explore some of these questions because we can dissect them more easily. We can measure things more easily. I see. And so that meant that you had to travel to New Zealand to measure them? That's right. Yeah. So I traveled to New Zealand um, and um, the researcher over there, Dr. Chrissy Painting, was really generous and allowed me to, uh, you know, showed me the weevils and taught me about their biology. And I just got more and more enamored with them as I learned more about them. And, and now tell me then, so let's go into the specifics of the study. So by the time you got to New Zealand, the, the one thing we can say, you apparently collected many different you know, weevils from uh, we exhibiting a, a huge range of body size, right? And, right? and with that, we're also talking about this huge range of, uh, of difference in size or the, the head size, if you will, head length, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and so you're talking about the costs associated with that, maintaining that trait. Right. So one of the things I'd started to um, think about during my PhD was a very uh, different um, field 
than I had I'd been studying. So I'd been studying sexual selection and why large animals carry disproportionately larger sexually selected traits as they get up and grow um, uh, for larger individuals. But another field is from the field of physiology and metabolism, um, a very consistent finding is that as animals scale up in size, they pay lower mass specific energetically costs to maintain their tissues. Mm -hmm. So this hypometric scaling of metabolic rate uh, with body size is a pretty consistent pattern across different uh, groups of organisms. And so is this uh, positive allometry or hypermetric scaling of weapons. So I wanted to see if there's a relationship between these large individuals paying lower mass-specific metabolic costs while at the same time maintaining disproportionately larger weapons. If those weapons scaled, if those weapon costs increased for larger individuals, how can they find the energetic resources to maintain them um, despite having lower uh, mass-specific whole body energy costs? So mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a paradox there. And mm -hmm. I wanted to see, there's gotta be a solution to this. They might have figured out some physiological trick or way of maintaining these large weapons potentially for a lower cost. I see, and is there a way? Yeah, so, <laughs> When I, uh, when I, the first thing we did when I, uh, when we found the weevils was we started to measure their resting metabolic rate. So we put them in little syringes um, and measured the oxygen consumption over time. And uh, the weevils are luckily, they're very long and, and thin. And so they fit quite well into a syringe. It worked mm -hmm. really well. Um, and we were able to um, get measurements of oxygen consumption which is a proxy for metabolic rate in resting individuals. And we found this hypometric scaling of metabolic rate with body size. So now the question still becomes, okay, they, they have this hypometric scaling of metabolic rate with body size, but how are they able, these large males still able to increase the size of their weapons disproportionately, mm -hmm. uh, despite having this lower mass specific metabolic rate than the small individuals. Mm -hmm. And um, the answer comes from uh, further looking into the structure or the architecture of the weapon itself. All right. So if you think of the weapon, there's uh, an external cuticle, which is um, relatively metabolically inert, but internally uh, there's a hemolymph, nerves, muscles, and tendons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And those are metabolically active. So those are likely contributing more to the resting metabolic rate of the organism um, than the metabolically inert cuticle. And when we think of the size of sexually selected traits, I think we implicitly assume the larger it is, the more costly it is <laughs> direct, in direct proportion to its size. But when we started to look at the relative proportion of metabolically active to inactive tissue in the weapon itself, we found that larger individuals dedicate more of their weapon to that metabolically inert cuticle and less to the metabolically active nerves, muscles, and tendons within the weapon itself. So, I understand. so they're essentially, large weapons for lower cost. Exactly. That's what I was going to say, right? So essentially, they're growing their necks or heads, but actually the, 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 the metabolic cost is not going to be proportional to the increase in their head size or your neck size. Are the costs zero? Are the costs negligible? Um, no. Well, so... The metabolically active tissue within the weapon itself um, 
likely contributes quite a bit to the overall resting metabolic rate of an individual. But one of the interesting findings in this case was that a small male or a large male dedicate about the same amount of maintenance costs to these structures. Um, and the only way that a large male is able to carry a larger one is because they're dedicating a higher proportion of cuticle to that trait um, relative to their body size. And so inverting the question, now, if that's the case, how come you have still males with a, with a, a, a small neck, if you will? It's like, do you know what I mean? Why do yes, you have absolutely. that variation? Absolutely. And that's a, that's a really interesting question. So I think there's probably an interplay between the costs and the benefits. That cuticle is pr probably uh, not very metabolically costly to maintain that extra cuticle in the large male's rostrum, but it might have some costs in development. Um, and so creating that structure in the first place might be more costly for small individuals relative to large ones. And that's why large ones might be able to grow these larger structures um, um, disproportionate of their body size compared to small individuals. Or large individuals we know also pay lower costs of, of movement per gram of tissue relative to small ones. So they might be locomotor costs to just carrying this thing around for small individuals relative to large ones. So the costs mm -hmm. may lie in different ways and not just in maintenance. That's very interesting. So to wrap up the interview now, uh, considering what you found, what do you think would be interesting future directions that, you know, some of the listeners that they might be interested in this sort of question and this sort of system, what would you encourage them? What are the big open questions in this field right now? Well, I think one of the most interesting things um, this study has allowed me to think about a little bit more is when we start looking at the physiology and the different components that these exaggerated structures or traits in general are made of in insects or in other animals, thinking about these traits that consume energy at this constant rate potentially during maintenance relative to metabolically inert tissue, we can start to divide um, traits into those that are contributing to energetic costs on a daily basis, while those that don't contribute directly to those energetic costs. So when we think of the inert feathers in uh, plumage of birds, or the inert dentine in elephant tusks, or the inert keratin in the horns of bovids, or the inert um, bony antlers of cervids, mm -hmm. or cuticle in insects, many of these exaggerated structures are actually largely composed of this inert tissue. And uh, there's likely a lot of supportive structures like nerves, muscles, and other um, uh, physiology that's allowed these animals to support these tissues. But looking at that structure by itself is probably not enough to understand how they grow, develop, and the constraints that face them. Absolutely, I totally agree. You know, so coming back from a physiological background, I would say that physiology matters to some extent, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. Uh, coming from a physiological background, but being always in love with uh, evolution in general as a, as a process, I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to combine both. Okay. Absolutely. And so, Matt, look, let, let me thank you for such a nice interview. Congratulate you for such an interesting paper. All right. And my, congr my congratulation goes to you and the whole team. I haven't mentioned the other co-authors, but you have Eric Powell, uh, Anthony Hickey, John Harrison. And as you mentioned before, right, the senior uh, author is Christina Painting. She's in New Zealand. 
So congratulations to you all. And in particular, congratulations for, you know, being shortlisted for the Haldane Prize. Okay. Thank you very much. And it's much. been a massive, a massive pleasure. All right. So thank you so much, Uma. Thank you.